Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, We Dig Tales from the Tour Bus, where the podcast about how and why popular music happens takes a break to talk about our favorite animated music history show from Mike Judge with hosts Nate Wilcox and Justin Bankston. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. This week, Nate and Justin talk about the second and third episodes of the funk season of Tales from the Tour Bus, featuring Rick James, the rise and fall of the king of punk funk. Tales from the Tour Bus can be viewed on Amazon.com if you subscribe to Cinemax. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or rather, it's time to dig Tales from the Tour Bus. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined as always by Justin Bankston. Justin, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Hello, hello. So tonight, we're handling two episodes of Tales from the Tour Bus, season two. This is season two, episodes two and three, about the great, late Rick James. It's heavy stuff. He's super freaky. Indeed. Indeed. And, and you know, Hammer couldn't touch this. That's the I, – I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. But I think the thing about these two episodes is the first episode is a pretty straightforward tale of triumph and success. And then the second episode, it's not relentlessly downbeat, but it definitely ends on a sad note. And it begins on a sad note. So – but let's talk about the good stuff first. Um, Indeed. You know, it's it's primarily chronological, although both episodes start with episodes from the touring life, which, like Nelson George said in that interview you hit me to, and Nelson George, the great um, rhythm and blues, hip-hop writer and scholar, producer, et cetera, et cetera, he, he was one of the producers of this series working with Mike Judge, and, and he said that you know the big advantage of this series was all the tour stories, as opposed to like so many of the Talking Heads documentaries about music he's made in the past, is that these tour stories make it crazy and fun, and the theme of the tour stories in the Rick James uh, two-parter on Tales from the Tour Bus is definitely the cops versus Rick James. Oh, yeah, public enemy number one, one of his guys calls him. 
Yeah. And it's, it's, um, you know, those of us that are old enough to remember, I mean, I was just a kid at the time, but the early 80s were way more uptight than things are now. As crazy and screwed up as things are now, I mean, the Reagan era, just say, just say no hadn't even hit yet. So drugs are pretty widespread, but the backlash is big and and shit was racist. I mean, you know, Rick James could not get on MTV, period, ever. And barely could get on FM radio. I mean, he could get on FM radio on the what they called urban stations and some stations that played a mix, but you know, it was pretty limited. Definitely couldn't get on a lot of rock stations. And as far as touring the South, I mean, it triggered the pigs. I mean, they came out the fuzz, the heat, whatever you want to call them, they were out in force to tell Rick and and the Stone City band, you know, we don't want you here. And the band in both episodes they start with like these great sequences the first one it's little rock they're hitting town and they've got satellite tv in the bus and they see like the state attorney general or some shit as as the band member that's telling the story comes on saying you know we're literally going to stop this show and they're laughing about it and laughing about it in the bus and then they get there and it's state troopers with smoking the bear hats and guns and helicopters and snipers on the roofs and they're asking who's rick james and what's the band say i'm rick james exactly just like spartacus and it's just beautiful you know and and to me, that's like a great way to start the show and the series because it invests, it shows you how much loyalty Rick James had. And I think that's a theme in the series, you know, and in our discussions of it that like, you know, artists like George Jones, who didn't cultivate or inculcate that kind of loyalty from their bandmates, suffered much worse fates than artists like Waylon Jennings, who built a team and a family around themselves. And at least until cocaine took him, Rick James was definitely able to build a family. For sure. And I mean, it's including multiple guys he went to like elementary school with. And that's just, that's unbelievable and beautiful. And it's, it's, just a rare and wonderful thing and they're all total badasses yeah and that's the the thing that they sort of trim around a lot of the story there's rick james had such an amazing long life that i mean short life but long career and musical took him a long time to get famous basically is what i'm trying to say so they cut some corners in the storytelling and left out a lot of stuff so you know not only did he go to montreal and go to la and and different things without these guys like he left buffalo and left these guys behind but but he went to london trying to get famous and working with bands and and traveled the world and then comes back as a pretty successful songwriter and producer with motown you know like like they say in the in the show you know rolls up in a mercedes to to get the old band back together but i i, I found that especially touching the more i learned about the story reading more about rick james and, and his his uh ghostwritten autobiography and, and on wikipedia and other places so it's it's just you know a cool story and other than that sort of flash forward that starts both episodes it's pretty much just a chronological telling otherwise yeah. Yeah, and I'll say one thing that struck me about those things that you mentioned is, like, he shows up in Buffalo, and, yeah, he's been sort of successful, but he's not famous. He's got a nice car. But he basically shows up to his old friend's house who's got, you know, what you have to assume is the hottest band in Buffalo based no on doubt. what they went on to do with him and says, 
have you got the band? He's like, yeah. He says, well, basically give it to me. I want you and your band with me. And the guy just says, yeah, let's do it. And like, that's, you know, what does it take to be that guy who you just walk in the door from nowhere and you say, uh, you know, round up the troops. We're going to go ahead and do this. And they just say, yes, yes, Rick James, we're, we're ready to go with you. I mean, that's, that's something. And it also, you know, it kind of, I think probably explains something about how you go from being in the minor birds and being the reason that that man breaks up because you get thrown in, in the brig for being AWOL and then parlay that into working at Motown, producing and writing songs and playing bass. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And for those who don't know, the Minor Birds was a band, and I remember the first time I heard this some point in the 90s and could not believe it, but the Minor Birds was a band featuring Rick James on vocals, Neil Young on lead guitar, and either Bruce Palmer, who was later in Buffalo Springfield, founding bassist in Buffalo Springfield, or Nicholas St. Nick, who was a founding bass player of Steppenwolf. So imagine Rick James buffalo springfield and steppenwolf on stage together uh in the late 60s or mid 60s you know in ontario and detroit and you've got the minor birds weird sound i don't know if you've tracked it down and listened to it but you can get it online now and it's it's real 12 string heavy definitely folk rock but with a legit r&b singer and rick james so this guy was a musical force and it was and a personal force and it was very clear to everybody but we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves there's a few sorry about that Oh, no, no, no. I think it was my bad. But, you know, I mean, this is a guy who grew up in, you know, as they say, in the ghetto in Buffalo. And and we should mention, I, I, well, I was going to start introducing the things. So I'll stick to our stru- the speakers, but I'll stick to the structure. Rick James' mom had like seven, eight kids and was an African-American Catholic in Buffalo, which – you know, I know a few African American Catholics, but not a lot. But but that to me is a distinct thing about Rick James, where he's coming from. And she worked for the mob. She she was a money counter for the Buffalo Mafia family, which is like they say in the show that you know the third biggest. Which I think you could argue whether or not Boston or Rhode Island uh, or Tampa or whatever might be the third biggest. But Buffalo had a big time mafia family, and and Rick James basically grew up in it that was the family business um although she didn't have a presumably an active criminal role but just you know money counter and and doing what she had to do to raise her family i found that totally fascinating and then they tie that back in when he does get the band together uh, that's the financing for the first album comes from the mob they made them producers yeah Named him producers, and I love the way they talk about him. You know, like with 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 fucky Polly and the guy with the nose over there, and 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 uh, it's yeah, it's that's Levi really just is, does not pull his punches about anything, not about Rick or about these mob guys or the cops or anybody. He's just like this guy just lets it out. Yeah, and and you know, and that's Levi Ruffin who played keyboards and was the band leader for the Stone City Band, and and you know Rick James's right hand man. And I think, you know, at the end of the second episode, Levi, I believe it's Levi, says that you know he what he gives Rick calls him for prison, and and you know he's like I'm always there for you, and and Rick's like why haven't you come to see me? And he's like I cannot, I cannot see my king in prison for some stupid ass thing. And we'll get to the stupid ass thing that sent him to prison later, but. You know, I think that's telling you why the band, you know, Rick James gives the call and the band comes together because he was just the leader of that pack of guys. They knew him from as a kid. They knew how musically gifted he was. They talk about, you know, how his musical gifts were obvious early, how his mother encouraged him. And and 
Levi, even the way he talks about him as a little kid, you know, you can tell there's this very real awareness of Rick's limitations. He talks about what a loudmouth he was and et cetera, et cetera, but a real love for the guy. And I, I found that really touching. Absolutely. And then, and then like, you know, we got to, I don't want to get too mired in the weeds, but, but one thing that they talk about early is pimping the audience, which, you know, they talk about how Rick growing up in the ghetto, that there were athletes, there were musicians and there were pimps and, and street hoods. These were the African-American role models they had. And the thing that Rick took from those pimps was, to pimp the audience. He doesn't mean taking them and selling them on the streets. He means control them. And they show him leading the 1812 overture in concert and sort of a medley of Mary Jane and, and the 1812 overture and getting the crowd to sing along. And they talk about how he had that command of the crowd and worked the crowd. And, and I think, I think that, and I, you know, feel free to disagree, but for me, I felt like the music segments in this got, Rick James across a little better than they did in the George Clinton episode. Not that, you know, I mean, you could tell George Clinton was solid from that, but it's really, really, really hard to get Parliament Funkadelic across in, you know, four minute and a half snippets. Whereas with Rick, I don't know, for some reason, I just found the musical segments a little bit more powerful than the ones in the Funkadelic. I agree 100%. I was going to bring that up if you didn't. I feel like the Rick James stage show as shown through the episode fits in so well because it's so cartoony and over the top and uh, not too complicated, straightforward and nuts and amazing to look at. And it just, it almost the difference between the live Rick James stage footage and the animation footage is minimal. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 the, the the thing is like I, it's not that I'm just diminishing Rick James, but I way I think George Clinton and P Funk is way more important than my personal preference. But Rick James had some solid solid stuff. I mean, he easily had, you know, three four four to five star albums. Definitely one massive five star album in Street Songs. And and you know I'm not trying to diminish his work. It's just that George Clinton is such a titan uh, that you know George Clinton's going to win that fight. That's just just reality but you know um but but i felt like that that the music came across in the rick james episode a little easier and i think the other thing there's two things i want to get to in this first episode before we segue to the sort of plot summary of the second one is that rick sets out to be a black rock star and having come up with Neil Young and these guys and almost been in Crosby, Stills and Nash or, you know, been the bass player for Crosby, Stills and Nash instead of Greg Reeves, that he had a real awareness of what a rock star was and what it meant to be a rock star. And really that was his goal was to give African-American audience that rock star experience and, and everything, you know, from based in a stage show in part on kiss with the explosions and the pyrotechnics he really succeeded in that. And, and, you know, I've, I've talked before maybe on, on the other let it roll. And I don't know if I've talked on this, but I grew up in pretty musically benighted times. I mean, I can remember being shocked that anybody liked black music, including the black kids I went to school with. And I'm talking about Michael Jackson and I didn't grow up with racist people. I grew up in a racist town, but I mean, 
the 70s and 80s, FM radio and everything was so racist. It's really hard to understate that. Like there was a big apartheid wall that fell when FM radio became corporate in the early 70s. And it it affected everything. I mean, you know, in the 60s, you would never have had something like MTV imposing segregated music. It just would not have happened. I mean, music was incredibly integrated in the 60s. But part of the backlash to the civil rights movement was – you know, this, this apartheid state. And Rick James was one of the first African-American performers that penetrated my consciousness. And I can remember as a kid, everybody like super freak. And so, you know, and, and then the last thing I want to get in on this episode is this really touching story Levi tells about, you know, they've made it big. They've moved to LA. They're living in Randolph Hearst, Beverly Hills mansion. And, Everything's going right. They've recorded Super Freak. So Rick calls Levi up. They're at the peak of their fame and fortune and invites him to lunch in L.A. And when he gets there, Neil Young's sitting there. And he's calling Rick James Ricky, and they're talking about the old times. And that literally brought tears to my eyes. I, I found it just really poignant and touching to think about these two guys who had known each other back in the day in Canada. Both of them had clawed their way to the top of the music business and and they're old friends and they're having a mutual admiration society and like levi says rick james was the one of the only people that encouraged a young neil young to sing which is why he became neil young because of that unique off-kilter voice and when most people thought oh this guy can't carry a tune he's got a weak cracking voice rick james heard something there and really encouraged him and i i just thought that was a great way to end the first episode it was really a beautiful moment. And, you know, it's one of those things, too. The, these stories sometimes are so hard to believe, like the Waylon Jennings being with Buddy Holly before he went on to become Waylon Jennings. And this is another one of those things where, you know, this bizarre circumstance has Neil Young and, and Rick James in the same band. And then they go on, like you said, to each essentially conquer the, the world. And then they get to just sit and have lunch and chat about it. And Levi's just sitting there starstruck and, and realizing, oh, right, you know, I work with Rick James, who is basically as big as Neil Young. Yeah, and it's and it's an, it's just awesome, and it's touching. And, and I, think, I think that it says a lot about how talent finds talent. And there's something about, you know, like if it's the Beatles story or whoever, they super talented people tend to find other talented people. Or maybe it's that super talented lucky people tend to find other super talented lucky people, but somehow fate intervenes. And there's one little note they throw in at the end of the first episode. It's about MTV and they, and they reference the segregation that is going to hit Rick James hard uh, in the second episode. So any final thoughts on the first episode before we move on? Nope. Cool. So, so, Part two starts with Mike Judge getting to the introduction. Both of the introductions Mike Judge does are excellent on these two episodes. And the the second one, he brings up the whole Dave Chappelle show thing. And which, when I watched the first one when it came out, I was like waiting for that to come up. Because that's how most people know know Rick James is from the whole cocaine's a hell of a drug Dave Chappelle thing and they think of him as a clown and as great as the Dave Chappelle show is and those sketches are a huge part of it I do feel like it's kind of diminished people's respect for Rick James on the other hand if they hadn't heard of him at all you know where do you come down on that 
as a trade-off? I think it's it's incorrect to say that most people know of Rick James from Dave Chappelle. I think more people have heard Super Freak than have watched the Chappelle show. And I think uh, that... I think it depends on age. People, I think you're probably right. I think you're probably right. Yeah, I think there's a generation of people I only know from the Chappelle show. But get back, get back to what you're saying. So you know, when I saw that, I you know, I already knew sort of, you know, the the, the story is so repetitive. You know, someone like Rick James, and now they're here. They are clearly washed up, uh, doing this you know appearance on a TV show, but it didn't make me think any less of Rick James when I saw it. Uh, but I, I do imagine that a younger person who, and they've heard Super Freak too. Everyone of any any age has heard that song, but they might not be able to put the name Rick James to it. So when they saw that, they might, they, you know, who knows what they thought. I can't, I don't understand young people. <laughs> yeah, ditto here. So, um, and the episode starts just like the the after after Mike Judge gives his little opening monologue. The episode starts just like the first one, except it's Atlanta instead of Arkansas. And this time, the cops want to arrest Rick, and he he foils them by bailing early in disguise, slipping out of the arena, and his valet dresses up in the signature Rick James white cowboy hat costume, and takes an ass whipping uh, from the cops when he gets off stage and that's brutal. And like, I think as Levi says, you know, you must really love your boss. If you're going to take a beating uh, for him like that. For sure. And yeah, the whole cops thing, I think, you know, the cops just couldn't abide a guy, you know, a, the cops don't, don't like a successful black guy. And then he's smoking weed, blatantly with the implied, Hey, you know what? Fuck the police and doing it, you know, in the, in the, the civic center in town, you know, they just, it drives them insane. Yeah. And, and just like he did you know, in Arkansas in the first episode, that's the first thing he did on stage. And then in Atlanta, you know, he was telling – and he's using the crowd against the cops. He's like, they want to get me. You're not going to let them get me, right? And and that that has to just absolutely get under the cop's skin. And then, then the next element that comes in, there's really to me three key elements to Rick James's downfall in this telling one is mtv two is cocaine and number three is prince and he invites prince to open for him on tour prince has just been booted off the rolling stones tour where it was opening because he wasn't getting over with their audience which is nearly impossible at the time i mean this is stadiums full of drunken white people who had never heard of prince but otherwise prince like they said in the show was building his audience mostly with white people he had some r&b hits but as a touring act especially coming out of Minneapolis, he had a heavy white contingent that hadn't really gotten over with the national black audience. And Rick James essentially put him over with the black audience because Rick James was the number one act touring at the time. And yet he's always watching Prince and very jealous of him. Yeah, I, I found that whole thing really depressing. You know, I mean, Prince is great. Rick James is great. And I understand, like, 
I think it's healthy to feel competitive with another artist and, and you, that can make you work better and work harder, which it clearly does in this telling, as you said, with like Rick keeps edging his game up, keeps going further, keeps doing more because he wants to outdo Prince and that part of it is great. But then it preys on his mind, which is the thing that I find just hard to hard to deal with. Yeah, I think it's part of the whole process. I mean, to to be a creative visionary like Rick James, who's somebody that, you know, talked his band into wearing braids and had this whole vision of we'll be like Maasai warriors and everything. People that have that are visionaries just think and experience the world differently and are more emotional and, and uh, you know, have kind of a childlike or magical view of, of things. And and the, the thing they didn't bring up, but I think it's important to emphasize, is that Rick James was pretty old. He's like Chuck Berry or Louis Jordan in that he doesn't get big until he's well into his 30s. And so, and music's just like mathematics or chess. It's one of those endeavors that younger people seem to do it better than older people. Not always. I mean, there are some artists, Neil Young for one, who continue producing great stuff at an older age, but still even Neil Young produced most of his best stuff when he was young. And so for Rick James to see somebody who's in Prince, who's maybe even more talented than him. I mean, the raw talent coming off Prince is incredible. And you know, somebody like Rick James can see the talent and to know that your powers are waning while this young kid's powers are just growing by the day. I can, I can understand. And then, and then the really where it gets unfair is that Rick James had been outspoken about being excluded from MTV. And I think, you know, going back and reading the articles and stuff, he's pretty much single-handedly responsible for breaking the apartheid on MTV. Cause the argument was we're a rock and roll station. We, we don't play rhythm and blues. We don't play disco. We play rock and roll. And basically their definition of rock and roll was it's by white people. It's rock and roll. If it's by black people, it's not. And, right. you know, flagrantly unfair and racist. And Rick James made enough of a noise. Plus, you know, CBS and Michael Jackson, and Prince were just beaten down the door. It became a business proposition that they couldn't avoid. And yet, because Rick James had been the squeaky wheel, he not only didn't get the grease, I mean, he got greased. He got shut out and never got on MTV, never won a Grammy, like they said. And that's just flat-out tragic. I agree with that. But I do think that they leave out what I think is a key element to that, in that in the you know, Barbara Bush dare to keep kids off drugs, just say no eighties. His act was blatantly pro drugs. That's true. That, that was, that was not a small thing back then like that. MTV wasn't going to like it. You know, nobody was going to like it. Who was sitting in a big building somewhere controlling shit. That's true. Uh, And Nancy Reagan more than Barbara Bush. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, Nancy Reagan. And the 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 whole, you know, the you know, ten years later, fifteen years later, when Snoop Dogg shows up or whatever, all that's out the window. But in 1983, 1984, whatever, that was a big deal, and 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 I think that they underplay how that affected, you know, these kind of things that that were negatively impacting the band. And I think I think one thing that ties that in is the whole the whole branding and the concept of Rick James and the Stone City Band was punk funk punk, which I remember at the time 
I'd barely heard punk, but I knew enough to know that Rick James didn't really sound punk, but his attitude was punk. And that was what they make clear that that's what they meant by funk punk is that, you know, we're going to be openly sexual. We're going to be pro marijuana openly, vocally, constantly. I mean, Mary Jane was one of his first hit singles. So just like punk had this backlash and got boxed out of American radio, I think Rick James, uh, had that same threatening vibe to the powers that be. And that's part of it. So that's a good point, but let's talk about cocaine a little bit and wrap up the plot summary. So one key thing is that, that some of the people I interviewed talk about how Rick was so in control that he even controlled who came backstage to party with them and that he would have this sort of ritual throwing a little bit of cocaine in the air is kind of like pouring out of 40 or whatever for his buddies. And he would watch who freaked out about that. And, you know, the, the point that I'm trying to emphasize is this was a man who was in control, but over time he loses control and he loses it to, to cocaine. And, if you listen to his his records, they don't really talk about this, but you know, he he hits huge with Super Freak, and and the album um, that that's on uh, Street Songs is a stone classic, and the follow up is solid. But he basically gets into this rut of repeating himself, and I think part of that was his age, like I said, but I think another part of it was the cocaine addiction is just eating him up, and and it devolves into this point where he's got this young girlfriend tanya jazzy 20 years old and you know david ritz who the ghostwriter of his autobiography says what a beautiful relationship it was but at the same time there was this sick dynamic there that leads them to twice be arrested in two separate incidents for kidnapping and torturing people and that is just a bad scene it's really it's shocking i mean Watching all of these things, there's plenty of crazy shit that happens, and but but this whole kidnap torture shit is like a whole nother level. You know what I mean? It is beyond shocking and horrible. And you it, you just it kind of and I I knew it happened. I had, I had heard about it, but still, like I was dreading getting to that point in the show. And when it got there, I was just like, oh fuck, because it is just real fucking terrible yeah absolutely and i mean the only mitigating thing i could say about it is it wasn't like they kidnapped random strangers off the street not that that makes it any better it just sort of explains how it happens is that they're partying with people and they're in an atmosphere of utter licentiousness and abandon and this guy hasn't had to follow any rules in decades and gets into apparently snm so it's not you know like he was Ted Bundy or something, but he was way off the chain, and I have no problem with him doing some serious prison time for terrorizing people. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad that he got thrown in the clink for that shit because it was you know unconscionable. And you know, I know that when you're like whatever however many days deep into like you know a free base cocaine binge, your conscience isn't working at its best, but like. That is just some dark shit. Yeah, it's it's not maybe systematic predation on people for decades like R. Kelly is accused of, but it's pretty damn close. I mean, you know, so um, it it's it's indefensible, and you know, the the band and his friends don't try to defend him, but they do point out, you know, this guy was sick. He was addicted to a terrible drug, and you know, it 
it he recovers while he's in Folsom prison, but as soon as he gets out, you know, he can't handle the real world. You know, I think it was David Ritz that says, you know, the world was just too much for him at this point and, and, you know, tries to get the band back together, tries to do one more tour, does the Dave Chappelle shows. And, and, you know, the band is like telling the story of how they're on a conference call with him and he's audibly sick again, audibly doing drugs. And these are guys, you know, they had carted him off to do rehab in Boston at one point and, and, he ends up partying with Steven Tyler in rehab. So they'd been through it all and they tried to save him <laughs> in that classic over and over again. And, you know, to me, it's really sad at the end when Levi Ruffin uh, talks about, you know, that Rick James died at age 56 with nine substances in his system and that Prince ODs at age 57, several years later. And, and Levi's like, God damn that little motherfucker, you know, like he feels like Rick, like Prince got over on Rick, even just outliving him for one year. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's powerful. Yeah. I really did appreciate in that part of how his band members who've been talking about him all this time, they don't let him off the hook at all for his depredations and, and, and how low he allows himself to go. But they still love him. You can tell there's, you know, you can still love someone while understanding that they're lost and useless, and that you, there's nothing you can do for them, and that you can't defend them. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's the definition of tragedy. I mean, as a hero with the tragic flaw, and Rick James clearly had tons of it. But let's let's go through the the format. So they had a really solid lineup of interviewees. We got Levi Ruffin, Daniel Lamel. William Reinhardt and Lanice and Nate used from the Stone City band. So you've got his keyboard player, a sax player, and the, the head of the horn group, two and another sax player. Then you've got a drummer and a percussionist, plus one of the Mary Jane girls, uh, and and David Ritz, his ghostwriter. And then the second episode, they add Jacqueline Reinhardt, who presumably is married to William Reinhardt or his sister, the sax player that they talk to, uh, who's a merch girl. So they basically have the same cast of interviewees for both episodes, and they tell the story well. I can't I can't complain. And one thing that Nelson George pointed out in that interview you linked me to with Afropunk is it's easier to do a show like this about somebody who's passed on. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, and then and, let's ro- go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say that the, the interview interviewees were all fantastic. I mean, they they've got the goods because they they were with the guy the whole time, and they clearly love the guy, but they clearly also feel unencumbered about like sharing, you know, the whole ugly and hilarious and amazing truth. And I loved how Levi was very. He was clearly really proud of what they had accomplished and his role. Yeah. And I, I really loved watching that because he should be proud. You know, they kicked that ass, as he said, you know, yes. a lot for a long time. And, you know, he enjoyed himself and he made this great music and he loved his friend and, you know, and then had to, you know, watch him fall off. But I, I think they were great. And I think Levi was especially uh, compelling. Yeah, for sure. And and Nelson George pointed out in that interview I keep referencing that the reason they did two part episode was just they had so much great material from from the interviewers. And now let's run through the songs that were in there. And I think I think the song selection sort of shows the th- relative thinness of the Rick James discography 
and I'm not talking about like compared, with that. Yeah, but only compared to people like George Clinton and James Brown that we're going to get to. I, or you Prince. know, yeah, or Prince, who's who's like a sort of a ghost that they basically this episode, <laughs> these two episodes, at least the second one of these episodes and the Morris Day episodes, Prince figures very prominently in but but you know they never do a full episode we'll talk about that when we get to morris day but in the first episode you get hard to get then you get that weird improv mary jane thing with the 1812 overture mixed in then you get mary jane and super freak so that's a really solid funk lineup of four songs and then in the second one you get love gun which is another solid rick james hit although not as great as others but then the next two songs it's do rags which is from his sort of answer to morris day in the time which is process in the do rags which is I, I i still haven't gone back and i've listened to the single a few times i haven't gone back and listened to the whole album and then the eddie murphy hit that he did that he produced for eddie murphy which was party all the time and I feel like that they probably could have found some more and better Rick James songs. There's some solid ballads. They could have done some of the stuff he did with Tina Marie, but I I, I can't flaw the storytelling. And so I'm not going to get too cheesed about the music selections. I agree 100. percent And and also like we said before, the a lot of the they they did a lot of live cuts of the band like with the full stage show, and it worked so well in the episode visually uh that you know i wasn't really and i mean i'm you know rick james is great but his music is not really my jam and so like i wasn't like pulling for my favorite song or whatever to be in there i was just kind of like taking it all in and from that perspective i thought it was really effective yeah i i can't argue with that so it's question time what was your favorite part of the two episodes you know, the, we've mentioned, I'm going to fit two in. There's basically two. The lunch with Neil Young, I just loved because I'm a giant Neil Young fan. And I thought it was just a really great scene. And then also just the way the live footage fit in with the whole show, the way we've been talking about it, just really, it was super exciting and satisfying. I I can't argue with that. And I think of the things we haven't already brought up, the Neil Young launch is probably definitely my favorite. And then the next favorite is probably Levi Ruffin talking about the Prince relationship at the end, or all of Levi Ruffin stuff from the, we kicked so much ass part and bragging about how they blew Prince off the stage or how, how after they played, nobody remembered who the opening act was all the way up to the end. I, I felt like Levi Ruffin talking about his friend and colleague was, was really powerful. Absolutely. What was your favorite? What was your favorite song? My favorite song was probably "Love Gun." Honestly, it, it's just kind of a jam, and I hadn't. It wasn't overplayed for me like some of the other ones, and so that's my favorite tune in there. Cool. And I and I've got an oversight. I forgot to mention MC Hammer's "Can't Touch This," which we have overlooked this uh, whole time. But that's as big <laughs> or bigger than Dave Chappelle as far as bringing Super Freak and Rick James to a second audience. So, right. You know that that basically. You know, Hammer got the the permission from Rick James to sample it, but like Levi Ruffin says, they didn't really understand the sampling thing, and then were pretty appalled when he samples the whole baseline. And basically, you can't touch this. Is built uh, it, without the super freak bass part. There's no song. I mean, that that's the song. But yeah. he got co-writer credit. He got money. He got a co-Grammy. So in the end, Rick James was happy about that. Yes. So what was the funniest part? Mm. 
again, I'm going to sneak two in. When Jim Brown shows up to their big mansion yes. in L.A. looking for his daughter, and yep. Rick, who has stood down the Arkansas State Police, you know, who has fucked off the the police department of every huge city from the stage. But when Jim Brown shows up, he sneaks out the back door. <laughs> I just <laughs> thought that was so good. Yes, that was that was excellent. And I think hmm, the funniest part for me. I, I got to go with the Jim Brown thing too. It's either that or the Steven Tyler in rehab, but that part that's, that's pretty dark humor. Cause, cause it ultimately, you know, ends, ends in his downfall, but yeah. that Jim Brown part is classic. I also loved Levi describing studio 54. Like the whole band yes. describing studio 54 was funny, but like Levi's just got real acerbic bent to him and like the way he just matter of factly described everything that went on in studio 54 was just a scream and i would love to know who the supermodel uh involved in that story was <laughs> <laughs> something tells me she's still alive and able to sue for libel if uh if they name her but so what was the saddest part of this episode i mean overarchingly it's the same sad part it always is it's like drugs ruin everything and then specifically, obviously, like the nefariousness of of the crimes, like just the sheer inhumanity of, of what he actually got up to when he was at his bottom. It's just, it's heartbreaking yeah. for everybody. Yeah, it really is. I mean, because that's just, that's Ted Bundy's type stuff. Torture is not cool. And to see a hero like Rick James fall into that level is, it's, that's sad. That's what tragedy is. But in the end, do we like Rick James? It's hard not to. I mean, I, I, I root, I'm rooting for him, you know, but you, you go, you can't let him off the hook for the, for the horrible shit he did, you know, and, but he, he seemed like a real, a real amazing person. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, with some, obviously some deep problems and some real, low points in his life that that you just you have to shake your head at but like the whole arc of the story and the way he always took care of his band and the way that like you know if he was partying they were partying if he was at the ritz they were at the ritz all that stuff like you know you just want to root for the guy yeah absolutely i mean it's different than somebody like jerry lee lewis who i think is probably a psychopath i mean you know it's like it's like rick james is somebody you feel like actually had the ability to connect with other people in a real way and just went went wrong and it's power corrupts money corrupts sex corrupts drugs corrupt you know and that combination is just too much for somebody like that and 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 really shows the limits of hedonism as a as a philosophy so as far as recommended listening i mean I, I listen. I, I played around with some some compilations, but I really feel like after a couple of weeks of listening to to his discography, pretty heavy. That Street Songs is such a solid album. That's where I would start, and to some extent, that's where you can end. I mean, if you love Street Songs, by all means, there's another four or five albums. Like Come and Get It, the first one. Um, you know, basically everything up to Throwing Down, Parts of Glow. It's all but Street Songs is the one. Yeah. I mean, and for me, Street Songs is probably all I need. Uh, 
but, but yeah, that whole early period is just completely, you know, it all, it all sounds very similar. Uh, even though there's that one record that I bring out garden of love as sort of like, it's the ballad record. And so it's kind of a nice break from, you know, the, the big bombastic Rick James sound. So that's, that's the one that's like a nice sort of change of pace. Yeah. I also personally dig the, the self-titled Mary Jane girls record. Uh, it's sillier even than the Rick James records, but it's really fun. Yeah, I, I can't argue with either of those. And also, I would highly recommend seeking out Tina Marie's first album that he produced and wrote a bunch of the songs on and the Stone City Band played on. I, I consider that part of the Rick James oeuvre. And, and bringing Tina Marie to the world, I mean, she's only the second white girl signed to Motown, and the first one in the 60s was what never, never clicked. And I think Rick James, plus a marketing campaign that obscured her race and got her over with the R&B crowd, you know... Uh, Tina Marie is is I think way underrated these days. Some people people have kind of I think Mariah Carey has kind of overshadowed her in a way. Um, but that first Tina Marie album, Wild and Peaceful, is excellent. So I think we're far enough along to discuss how this these two episodes fit into the season arc. What did you think of the placement of them in the in the eight episodes of the season? I thought it was good. I thought you know. Uh, Obviously, there's this sort of Prince through line that we're going to get with uh, with Rick, and I also enjoyed how uh, they were talking about how Rick and Prince were competing with their vying, you know, girl groups, uh, and we had just seen that ten years before that. Clinton had had the Brides of Funkenstein out and everything else that he was doing. And so these guys are like squabbling about who's going to get their, you know, girl group record out first, but they're both, they're all like following in the wake of George Clinton. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. And, and I, 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 my, my, my main complaint about it is that I would like it to have gone to start with George Clinton or maybe start with a different one, but I couldn't figure out a better season opener for season two. But I would like to have gone straight into Bootsy and then into James Brown. But you can't follow James Brown, uh, except with, yeah. you know, they, they have the Betty Davis episode. It's kind of like they did the Blaze Foley episode at the end. It's kind of, you know, the, the after dinner mint or whatever. So I understand ultimately how it's done. But it was sort of a break in the narrative because the George Clinton and Bootsy Collins Bootsy Collins is such a perfect bridge between George Clinton and James Brown that to me it, it's yeah. sort of frustrating. So, you know, in the first season it was like we didn't know where to put Jerry Lee Lewis in, in the second, ep- which was the second episode. And this time I feel like we don't quite know where to put this this Rick James two-parter because as awesome as it is, it's not quite as epic as the whole George Jones, Tammy Wynette thing with the Johnny Paycheck intro in the first season. I have to agree. But... You know, all the same, it's an excellent episode. I definitely think it continues the the excellence of Tales from the Tour Bus. And that Nelson George interview teased that they had talked about doing a hip-hop season. And some of the stories he was telling that they could have done, I so hope that they do a third season. I'm not optimistic at this point, but man, would I love a hip-hop season and I would love a metal season. Man, it would be, it would be a dream. So, you know, write your congressman, 
Uh, write Mike Judge, <laughs> write Cinemax. <laughs> yeah. Hire a skywriter to write it in smoke above Mike Judge's house. Exactly. Definitely. So, Justin Bankston, I believe we've covered two episodes of Tales from the Tour Bus, season two, episodes two and three. We dig it. Thanks, Justin. Thank you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. Come back next Thursday as Nate and Justin will be back to talk more tales from the tour bus, season two featuring Bootsy Collins. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Tales from the Tour Bus can be viewed on Amazon.com if you subscribe to Cinemax. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.